Our reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. If you are using a church Bible, that's on page 977. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Let's, uh, let's get right to work here. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right into Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this time. We pray that you would change us through us through this and that you would give us humble, receptive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to say at the out front of this message that there is, there's really nothing unique, uh, in a sense, about Heritage Baptist Church. I've said this before a number of times here at our church, and that is that we are not trying to be innovative here, we're not trying to be original. We're not trying to be novel or trendy uh, in our contemporary church culture. Uh, we're not trying to do something that has never been tried before. And we're certainly not trying to be people that uh, we've never attempted to be before in, the, in that sense. Uh, we want authenticity. So on the one hand, we could say there's really nothing unique uh, about Heritage Baptist Church. We simply see ourselves as a pack of 21st century Christians who are called to Owensboro to broker the good news of the gospel to this city. And we are, we, we are simply recognizing that we are broken people uh, who are in desperate need of God and that through that brokenness, we want to take an old message, a past message, and bring it into the present so that other people can see the gospel and respond to it through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we want to stay focused on the fundamental things. I mean, that's the main point that I'm making here. But on the other hand, I do think that God is doing something really unique here. And by here, I mean in Heritage Baptist Church and in this city. I think God is doing something unique uh, and very strategic. Because I'm convinced that the church... Not only in America, but hear this, even in our own city, has a major PR problem. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. And that's not because I just talked to people inside the church who have lots of opinions on what's happening sort of with the state of the church in Owensboro or in America, but because I talk to people outside of the church as well on a regular basis. And when you ask people inside the church and outside the church about their experiences of the church, it is not a pretty picture. It's not. It's not in our city. It's not a pretty picture. Constant marketing. Church growth schemes that fill very disingenuous or pastors with questionable character prosperity teaching that sort of leaves you with the idea that if you sow your seed into this ministry then god will bless you with riches but it seems to be very very sort of church centric sow your seed here right incessant talking about tithing or money in that sense 
weak and cowardly preaching. Bait and switch techniques to get people to come into the church. You know, we just kind of woo them in this way and then, yeah, we got them. Now we've got them hooked in. A lack of authenticity, an incessant, hear this, an incessant craving to grow bigger all the time. Got to have a big church and we'll grow bigger and bigger by any means necessary because, man, we want people here. This kind of seems to be a narcissism underneath all of that. And what's the results of this? It's, it's bad. Non-Christians see through it. And a lot of them, a couple of the guys that I talk to on a regular basis in town uh, who are agnostic or atheist or skeptic, but very nice, good, nice guys. They're, they're not antagonistic in that sense, but they're just being honest. Would just say, you know, they want nothing to do with it. Bothers them. Naive Christians, don't, they, they don't like it, and, uh, but yet they don't really know what's wrong with it. They just sense something's wrong. But what they end up doing is a lot of naive Christians put themselves in these weak churches, and they're not growing themselves spiritually. Sometimes more discerning Christians will approach a situation like this, and they're just living frustration. Like, where is a healthy church? Can't find one. Isn't there a healthy church somewhere? Then other Christians... They just quit on the church. Like, I'm just done with it. I've tried. I've hopped around. I've gone place to place. And, you know, and, and it just so much of it seems fake. And I'm just done with it. So what's the point? I think the point is that we have kind of a crisis on our hands when it comes to the church. The word church today is used in all kinds of ways. And in our consumerist culture, it's not unusual to come across all kinds of self-centered views of the church. So... We think of church like a gas station to fill me up, or a movie theater to entertain me, or a drugstore to take away my pain, but in each case, me ends up being the center of what we're doing with the church. Over the years, I've encountered a number of people, not only as a pastor, but sort of in my preparation to be a pastor, who view the church in a way that seems to be very American and yet very foreign to the New Testament. Years ago, when I was in Minnesota, I met a family who seemed very keen on attending the church that I was at at the time, and I was working with youth ministry during those years, and I noticed that their attendance was quite sporadic. It was interesting because after several weeks of getting to know them and sort of watching them, and they would be there and not be there, um, I came to find out that on Sunday morning, the parents were alternating between two different churches, so they would go one place and they would go to another, but the kids were going to a third church. And, uh, and in total, actually, on Wednesday nights, the kids were then going to a fourth church uh, for a youth program. So in total, they were kind of surface deep in about four churches. Now, they were a good family. They seemed to really love Jesus. But functionally speaking, they treated the church more like a retail outlet. You know, I mean, is it, which is a very common sort of American approach to church. And it's not healthy. Charles Colson once said it this way, he said, many Christians concentrate on obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me. But there's no such thing as Christianity apart from commitment to a local church. That is a helpful word by Colson. Now, in preparation for this message, I've been praying a few things for us as a church, several specific things. And many of you in this congregation are younger, and you're at a place where you're thinking and praying about what you might do with your life. And some of you have gifts that you could strategically use 
powerfully in the church and around the world. And I'm praying for you that you would have a clearer vision and sense of what the church is, that you would devote yourself to the church fully and directly, and that you would serve the body of Christ. Others of you are in midlife. And what that means for you is that you're looking to kind of readjust your focus. You're in a position where, you know, you can do that. And maybe the kids are out of the house and uh, you've sent them away, they're at college or they're past college, they've grown up and they're gone. And, and, and I'm praying for you that you also have a fresh vision, not only for your Christian life, but that you would say that in the second half year of my Christian life, I'm going to devote myself to the good of the church. My prayer is that you'll catch a vision for that. And others of you in our congregation have significant influence in um, what I would say Christian organizations, in town or nationally, and, and you're doing a marvelous work. You influence policy within those organizations, which is a, a significant opportunity. And I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you will begin to say to, in your own heart that it's not enough for us to serve people uh, in this city by leading them to Jesus. It's not enough. In our organization, we need an intentional strategy to help people that we serve to become connected to Christ church. You see? And if we understand the doctrine of the local church, what it's going to do is it'll shape our whole vision for the future. So this morning, I want to encourage us with this subject in a fresh way as we look at Ephesians 2 and what it has to say about the local church. And if you feel, I want, what I really want here, my burden, is that you would feel the greatness of what it means to be a part of a local congregation. Yes, with its sin and all. That you would still see that to be a part of the church is one of the one or if not the greatest privilege that we have on this earth this side of heaven. It really is. And that may be a fresh thought for some of you. Now today we come to this great image of the church in Ephesians. We're walking our way through the whole book of Ephesians. And to be frank, you may be here this morning and be skeptical about the church. You 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 may be saying, look, if you only knew, I mean I could tell you some stories about the church. And I'm sure you could. And actually, what's interesting is that as a pastor, we could tell you some stories as well. And they're not always pretty. But if you've ever been discouraged or frustrated with the local church, if you've ever felt like giving up on it, and my guess is almost all of you have felt feelings like that, then this message is for you. That we need to grasp and hear and see what's in these verses so, so that, here's the purpose, that we'll be able to sustain a life and ministry in the local church and not give up on it. Because it's so easy to get frustrated and just be like, I'm done with this. The church is unlike anything else in the world. And so God uses all these multiple images to instruct us about his church. For example, you know, probably the most common image is that the church is the body of Christ. The idea is that Christ is the head and he is, he is, he is forming the body and functioning and leading that body uh, in, in a very strategic way. And so we see that image. And, but then there's other images. So, for example, right here in Ephesians 2, we have this powerful image. Paul says we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. We are members in God's household. And the third image is that we're a temple. We're the dwelling place of God. I like these ideas, the, the fellow citizens idea. That's the image of a nation. We are God's people. And then you have the household image. We are God's children. This is the image of a family. We are in his family. And then you have God's dwelling place, a habitation for God's glory and spirit, which is an image of the temple. And all these images kind of come together. 
And there's three of them. And what's interesting is that you'll notice that in this text that each image actually becomes more intense in terms of our relationship with God as it goes. So a king is in a city with his people, but a father is in the same house with his children. And since we are the temple, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us internally. So you're seeing a more intensified relationship to God as we go. All right. So what I want to do this morning is ask this question, what is the church? And I want to show you four answers to that question from this text. Okay. All right. So that's where we're going. What is the church? First is this, the church is a multi-ethnic family. Look at verse 19. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, I love how he starts there. It's almost like Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, you know, the but God phrase. And again, Paul goes through the same motif. He says, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but now it's the same kind of an idea. Once you were this, but now it's good news. Once you were outsiders, but Christ has changed us. Once you were homeless, you were considered second-class citizens in a foreign land that was not your own. But now is the idea. But now, he says, your fellow citizens. Lloyd-Jones uh, put it this way. He said, we no longer just have passports. We actually have birth certificates. I like that. Paul is referring to citizenship in God's kingdom. And notice that we are fellow citizens with the saints. The term saints here has reference to all Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, at the end of verse 19, Paul changes the metaphor of citizenship in God's kingdom to something more personal. We're not only citizens in God's city, but we are members of his family. Again, the intimacy language. Now, you might be able to imagine Jews and Gentiles coming together sort of in a political city. That, that might happen. But to see them together in the same family, now that's stunning. All right? And so we're, we're in the middle of this racial tension and hostility in our country right now. Baltimore, Ferguson, and you can feel it, okay? And be something akin to that, an intense feeling of that in the middle. And, and, you're, and, and Paul's saying Jews and Gentiles are in the same family. And then we're one. We have the same father. Paul made that point in 2.18, the, the verse right before this. He says, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So we're both children in his family, and because of that, we should treat one another like family. There's all kinds of application here. This passage not only confronts Western individualism, but the racist impulse in us, even as believers. Man-made distinctions between black and white are not acceptable in gospel-centered churches or gospel-centered people. Understand, you must understand that we are part of a third race of people. That the, the church is not a black church or a white church. You know what we are? We're a red church, redeemed and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're a group of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we're not black, we're not white, we're red. We are a third race altogether. And we need to display our love for the gospel by intentionally cultivating diversity. I mean, what could be more powerful as a witness to the world than for the world to see people from all different ethnic backgrounds united in, in Jesus? 
It's powerful. So that's what's happening right now in Baltimore. I, I, Michael Crawford, a pastor, a friend of ours, is pastoring a church there, Freedom Church in Baltimore. And he's a black pastor in town. And it's amazing to see all these black and white pastors coming together for the sake of, of the good of the city right in the middle of this racial hostility and tension. But who's doing that? Who's leading the way in that? It's Christians. Why? Because Christians have understood that they're part of a third race. That Jesus brings together all, all forms of different ethnicities together. All right? So this is what we see here. And we need to practice this in our church. Not just have a conviction about it. There needs to be intentional practicing of this. All right? So the church, that's the first thing that we see right here. Is that in, in this passage, we see Paul is saying that the church is, we are citizens in God's kingdom. That's, that's who we are. We are brought together. We are united together. We're a multi-ethnic family. Secondly, we are built on Christ and his word. That's the second thing the church is. We are built on Christ and his word. Look what Paul says. Paul says that this household of God is built on the foundation, verse 20, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right, let's break this verse down. Now, nothing is more important obviously, to any building than its foundation. I remember how long it took them to lay the foundation of this building. It seemed like it took forever. They had to get the ground hard. It had to have a certain degree of, uh, of firmness to it. And then they could finally pour the concrete. And it, that, just making the ground firm seemed like it took forever. It seemed like months. Finally, they laid the concrete. So nothing's more important than a foundation. And you always lay the foundation before the building, actual building, begins. What's Paul saying here? Well, I think what he's saying here is, think about this. Since the apostles and prophets were in a teaching role, it seems clear that the church's foundation is not just these men, but it's their instruction. Okay? So these New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets, both of these men, were, they spoke God's word and they wrote God's word. So in essence, what Paul is saying is that the church is built on the foundation of God's word. And that's why we read in Acts that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, clearly then, if that's the case, the pulpit here that I'm standing in right now is a very sacred place. Very sacred. A church will stand or fall on its faithfulness to God's word. In many ways, I would say you can measure the strength of the church on the strength of its pulpit. When the pulpit is weak, the church is weak. If this pulpit is cracked, the church will fall. It cannot be sustained. It's a holy place and it must be filled by holy men who preach his word faithfully. And I just want to say to you, if you're here today as a non-Christian or you're not sure if you are a Christian... I just want to encourage you, whether you come here or to another church, please find a faithful place where God's word is preached consistently. And the message that is held out to you fundamentally that pastors are called to preach and center their message on is the gospel. And so that's what we do. We invite you warmly as God does to, to receive his forgiveness and his grace and his kindness. And, 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 and that gospel plea of encouraging sinners to turn from their sins, to lay down their sins and to come to Jesus Christ, to say, I'm done sort of living for myself. I'm going to follow Jesus. That gospel plea 
is the essence of who we are as a church. Because that gospel not only saves us, but it begins to form and shape our whole lives. So if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you to consider this morning what it would mean for you to totally, to totally do a U-turn by, by, by the uh, grace and strength of the Holy Spirit and to decide this morning by God's help and grace that you will follow Jesus. We would love to help serve you in that direction. So the church is a multi-ethnic family. It's built on Christ and his word. Third, what is it? Verse 21, the church is a work in progress. Paul says this, he says, in whom, and he's referring to Christ, verse 21, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, notice the word grow here. The idea is clearly that there's a process that's taking place here. And, and it's something that continues to this day. He uses the present tense in verse 22. He says, you are being built together. So this is something, this is a construction process that's happening right now. It's very important that we see this, especially if you're prone to discouragement. If you're one of those types that comes to the church and, and you're prone to see all the faults and you know the problems with the church and you're prone to discouragement, then you really need to see this because Paul is telling us that the church is a work in progress God's building is not yet complete. There is a construction sign over the church. So nobody should be surprised to come to the church and to see it and for it to look and feel more like a building site. Because that's what it is. The church is made up of ordinary people who are in the process of being redeemed. Some are not redeemed. Others are in the process of being renewed and changed and transformed. And since no one has arrived, right? Has anybody arrived? Anybody made it? And since no one has arrived, then what we are is a room full of sinners who are imperfect and there's lots of problems. We're a work in progress. So don't get too frustrated when you see flaws in the church because it's led by and it's, and it's lived in by a bunch of sinners. I mean, it's a construction project. That's the point of it. It was Augustine who first described the church as a hospital for sinners. And you know what he said? Here's what he said. Augustine says, it would be a very strange thing for a person to criticize the hospital because the patients are sick. Do you hear that? Does anybody go around and say, you know, that Owensboro, that hospital here, OMHS, that hospital is, that's a joke, man. Did you know that there's a bunch of sick people in there? That hospital's flawed. And, and to say the same thing, to be like the church, that, well, the church is flawed. Because there's sinners in it. <laughs> Isn't that the point? It's a place for broken sinners. That's who we are. It's what it exists for. Now, when you grasp that truth, it will help you. And what I want to encourage you to do is to set your expectations about the church wisely. Set them wisely. Think of it this way. It's hard enough for two sinners to make a good marriage, isn't it? But it, think about how hard it is for 200 sinners to make a good church. You put that many sinners together, it's hard. Set realistic expectations in light of the fact that the work is in progress, it's in process, and it's not yet complete. We have to get rid of perfectionist illusions regarding the church. It was John who said, the Apostle John, when we see him, we will be like him, which means we haven't seen him yet, so we're not yet like him, so hang on. We got some time left. But until then, we are under construction. This is a building site. It's not a showroom. 
Oh, we want to display this church. It is perfect. It's got all these things together. No, it's not. That's, there's no showroom for the church. It's always a construction project. So in any church, what you're going to find is that things are not yet done. There are things that are out of place. You're going to see that. You're going to see all kinds of things that need to be taken down. There are other things that need to be cleaned up. There are things that need to be started for the first time. And it will always be like that until Jesus comes back because we are under construction. You'll always be able to say, well, that needs to be done, and this needs to be done, and that needs to be fixed, and that's wrong. And that's part of it. It's like building a house. Well, we got to put the drywall up. We got to lay this. We got to put this in. There's always something that needs to be done. Now, it's easy for the critic and the cynic to come into the local church and say, well, look at all this that's not done and so forth and so on. And look at all the problems. And, 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 and if that's the case, then how can Jesus really be blessing that church? Because, I mean, it's got a lot of issues. Well, Jesus is blessing that church. You know why? Because Jesus is the builder. I want you to think about what you're doing when you're criticizing God's church. You're not only criticizing the human leadership and the human members and the human teams of ministry leaders that make up that church. You're criticizing the master builder himself at some level. And that's not good. Suppose you're doing a remodeling job on your own house. And you decide you're going to give the keys away. You're going to go on vacation. And y'all are going to head down to Florida. And you give the keys to the guy and you say, hey, man. Go to work on our house, and while you're uh, going to work, um, we're going to be down there basking in the sun and having fun, and we hope that when we get back, we'll see some progress. Guy's like, man, I've got my whole week. I'm going to dedicate it to your house, and you come back, and there's nothing that has happened. I mean, you walk back, and you're like, the house is, I mean, it doesn't even look at the guy even opened the door. Everything's left exactly the way it is. You, what would you say? You would conclude the guy never entered the house. He never did anything. But what if you came back and there were drop claws all over the floor? There were ladders against the wall. There was drywall dust everywhere. There's a huge pile of junk on the lawn. And then you would know the builder was at work. He was very productive. Why? Because there was a mess. Now get that picture deep into your mind because it will help you to think well about the church. Christ is present as the builder and when the builder is at work, there is always chaos. There is always a mess. And the evidence of his presence is not that everything is complete or looks great or is in perfect working order, but the evidence evidence of Jesus' presence in the church is that there are always things in process and they often feel messy. That's the evidence. He's at work. Look at Paul's language. You are being built. And, and see, the, here's the thing. If we don't understand this, we will spend our whole life looking for perfection. And so what people do is they have a tendency to kind of hop from church to church to church to church to church. And I think Owensboro as a city is really bad about this. I mean, constantly we, we have a situation where people are saying, you know, you know, we came from this church and this church, this church and this church. And I understand some of that because you've got to find a healthy church. So I get some of that moving around. But it just seems like it's just tons and tons and tons of this. And, and I'm, you ask the question, why is this happening? And I think part of it is this, is that one of the results of doing that, in fact, is that if you keep moving around so much, eventually you'll get disillusioned. And you'll just end up on your own. You'll quit on the thing. You'll say, I just can't find one that's good. 
And so you'll quit and you'll end up being sort of a lone ranger Christian. And obviously that's not God's desire for you. Instead, what you should do is this. Lock in on a place and get to work. That's my encouragement. Some of you um, maybe are here this morning and you're like, man, I'm busted. I'm that guy. I'm that girl. I'm a church hopper. All right, let me encourage you to do this. Lock in on a place and get to work. All right, because there's nothing perfect. You're not going to find a perfect spot. Put your gifts and skills to work. Why? In order to produce a more beautiful version of that particular local church for God's glory. Bring your faith. Bring your prayer. Bring your encouragement. Don't be a person that pulls the church down with constant criticism. Be a person who pulls the church up, who strengthens it with your encouragement and with your effort and with your work. You have unique gifts, which is why one of the great problems of the church is, uh, one of the, is, is that the church never gets more beautiful if people are just sitting and consuming. In other words, you've got to put your gift to work for the thing to become more beautiful. There are some of you that are not currently serving in, in, in this church or another church. And what you do when you do that is that you're, you're keeping that church from becoming more beautiful. Because you have gifts that you can apply. And that if you would just start applying those gifts, that church would become a healthier and better church. Now, so we have unique gifts. Verse 22, notice the language of together. There's twice the word together occurs in 21 and 22. We are joined together in 21. Look at verse 22. We are being built together. The church is a building of people. And Peter picks up on this theme. He says that we are living stones in 1 Peter. So the idea is that we are living stones in this building that Christ is putting together. Now, think about that. Stones have all different shapes and sizes and colors. They're hewn out of the quarry. And when they come out, they have all kinds of rough edges. And, and, and the great skill of the master builder, in this case, which is Jesus, is that he brings all these stones together, and each one of these unique stones finds its special place within the building. The, the master goes to work on these stones. So Tina is from England, and of course I have an opportunity to travel to England and see this. And one of the things that you see when you're in England is lots of walls of these dry stones. And by dry stones, I mean walls that are made of stone that don't have any mortar or cement sort of binding these stones together. They're just stacked on there strategically. And some of these walls have been there for centuries. Centuries, like Back into the Middle Ages, it's unbelievable how long these walls have lasted, the strength of them. And the point of that is that here's the thing. You can't make a dry stone wall with one shape and size of stone. The whole point is that the the strength of the wall depends on the strategic placing of uniquely shaped stones on that wall to make it. And that's what God is doing with his church It's something of what Paul means here. We're living stones. Each of us has a unique gift and contribution to make. But because the church is messy, people avoid it. But you see, this passage, as I said, confronts Western individualism. To be separate from the church, to be detached from the church, is to say, I want to be a living stone, but I don't want to be a part of the building. It's to say, I want to be a child, but I don't want to be a part of the family. I mean, it just doesn't work. It makes no sense. But many people treat the church like it's an unnecessary thing or it's just totally optional. You know, I don't have to go to church. I can stay home. I can watch church on TV. That's never a good plan. Uh, I can, well, we'll have family worship, family devotions, because we can't find a healthy church in town. So we're just going to, and, and, and you can do that all day long, but you will miss 
all kinds of growth, and you will miss a blessing from God's Spirit that is intended to come your way. And that's why so many people hop from church to church. They never anchor down to pursue a deep, meaningful membership in one place. And, and that kind of Western individualism, that Lone Ranger Christianity, is killing us. So I want to call us this morning to a heightened love for the local church. The New Testament sees our involvement with a church as our fundamental identity. I mean, have you, ever, have you ever moved to a place and before you moved there, you wanted to inquire and make sure that there was a good church there? I would just encourage you that you, that, you, that you think about not taking jobs in other cities and states before you have done your research. Are there good faithful churches there that actually preach the gospel? Because if you move your family to a city and there's not a faithful evangelical gospel church that's preaching Jesus, what, what, you just moved your family into a war zone. You think about that. The church is so important. In some ways, it's, it's, more, important, it's more important than your job. It's more important than, than uh, your, your hobbies or any other organization that you're involved with. And so we need, to, we need to be called to a deeper involvement in the local church. And in the New Testament, we see that church members are identifiable. We need to identify ourselves with real, visible, tangible people. The, the concept of church membership is seen throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. We have an interesting bit of language there in 2 Corinthians 2 where it says the majority of the members actually voted to remove a man from the church. Or in the book of Acts, people were counted. You see the church, there was added to their number. And then they actually list how many people. And then in Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 5, we see that pastors are called to shepherd particular sheep, like actual sheep. Pastors are not held accountable for random people. When I stand before Jesus someday as a pastor, God's not going to hold me accountable for just random people that showed up at my church. God is going to hold me accountable for specific members and sheep that committed themselves to the Lord. I don't know who I'm supposed to be responsible for. See, this is one of the things about being a pastor and being a member. Like, so if you come to a church and you're there consistently, but, but you don't join it, you don't actually become a part of it. I mean, am I supposed to pastor you or not? Man, that's kind of a difficult situation. And certainly it's hard, but I know this. God will not hold us accountable for just random strangers. We'll be held accountable for sheep, real sheep, who come and who are involved Now, what that means for you is that I think God is calling you to form deep relationships and real commitment to the church. And you might be asking the question, well, how deep, right? I mean, how how deep does this get? Well, I would say you should deepen your relationships to the point of two things, okay? First, personal accountability. You're in the same family, members of the same household, as he says here. When you grow up in the same home, there's transparency there, isn't there? Your brothers and sisters, you all see each other. You, you see each other's character flaws, deficiencies. You know, you, you fight. You, you just, just, just transparency just comes out. Your mom and your dad, brothers and sisters, they know who you are. They know your character and they know, they know your issues. Because they grew up around you, they saw your flaws and your sin and your character issues. And the, and the, the principle is this, is that you cannot be private about your sins and your faults and expect to grow as a Christian. It just, it just doesn't happen. Don't treat the church like an event. Just come. You know, I'm just going to come and I'm going to listen to the worship. I might participate. I'm going to listen to the preaching, but I'm not going to get close with anybody. Look, if you do that, 
you are stunting your growth as a Christian. You need to learn how to be vulnerable and open yourself up because we need that, right? So is there anybody that knows your besetting sins because you've told them? Is there anybody that knows your struggles because you're opening up your life to them? That's what gospel community groups are for. All right, number two, I would say deepen your relationships to the point of whole life involvement. Students in a school study together. Uh, Colleagues in an office work together. In a family, we live together. You share each other's space. You eat together. You work together. You play together. And that's what we mean by Christian community. And so we stress gospel community here because we we need to let people into our real life. Like, they need to know who we really are. God inhabits us together. You think about this. When, when we're praying and worshiping God together, there's a unique presence of God that can only be experienced at that time. Like right now, when we're worshiping, there's something about God's Spirit. He's moving when all of His people come together, when we gather. And, and, and what that means is that God's power is at work in your life to the degree that you throw yourself into community with a church, there's a level of growth that you will never experience outside of the church. And you say, well, well, yeah, but Jonathan, but the church is a mess. Of course it is. You say, well, the church has hurt me. Of course it did. It's hurt everyone. You say, well, but look, I just want to have a relationship with just me and God, you know, outside of the church. And I would just say to you lovingly, if that's the case, then you will have to make up a God of your own because the God of the Bible will not have you do that. Growth and blessing come when you throw yourself into a messy church and you get involved with Christians and community at this level. So here's what we've seen. The church is a multi-ethnic family. It's built on Christ and his word. It's a work in progress. And finally, it's the dwelling place of God. Verse 22, Paul says, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is a dwelling place of God. And it's God's presence among us that marks us off as the people of God. In the language of Moses, it's God's presence that distinguishes us from all the other people on the face of the earth, as Moses says. So not only do we have access to the presence of God, verse 18, but God himself has chosen to dwell with his gathered church. That's a great promise that we have. And, And that's what we get to experience right now. But I want you to understand that there's a forward thrust to this. There's a future idea here. The ultimate goal of verse 22 will be experienced in the future. It's the fulfillment of the promise in Revelation 21 that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you. The ultimate and final expression of God's dwelling with us is found, as I said, in Revelation 21. Someday the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And on that day we read that there will be no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb. What God is saying is that a time is coming when God will make all things new. We will be delivered from this sin-cursed world. We will dwell with God in a new city. We will be in his presence and God will tabernacle among us forever. Paul is telling us that God's church will not always say under construction on it, 
But a time is coming. At some point, the building will be complete. God will make his home among his people and we will rest forever in his presence. And I just want to encourage you in light of that just to hang on. All right? Hang on. So here's what we've seen. We've seen the church is a multi-ethnic family. It's built on Christ and his word. It's a work in process and it's the dwelling place of God. Now let me conclude by giving you some applications. Um, what difference does this teaching make for you? I want to suggest two things and we'll get out of here, okay? Two things. Number one, use this truth to help you grow in patience. Use this truth that you see here to grow in patience. God uses two imperfect environments to shape us as Christians into the likeness of Jesus. Do you know what those two places are? Two profound places to shape us. One is the home. Like when you get married, there's friction. And he uses that. And the second is the church. Why? Because there's friction. And he uses that. These are places where you rub against other believers. And he uses that sanctified friction to rub off your rough edges as living stones. The pain comes when God takes his stones and with chisel and hammer in hand begins to pound away at the rough edges on those stones and forms them into a beautiful masterpiece. He shapes you and none of that is comfortable, but that's what he does in his church. God will grow you in patience by bringing some utterly exasperating people into your life. (laughs) He will. He'll put somebody right beside you that you just do not get along with. And he'll do that for your good. And then God will do this. He'll grow you in courage by bringing some very intimidating people into your life. People that scare you. People that bother you. People in in a way that you just don't feel comfortable around them. One writer said it this way. Christians need the church to have problems, not just blessings. That's really good. They need the church to have problems, not just blessings. That's true because part of what God is doing in the imperfections of his church is he's rubbing off the rough edges of his people. He uses the messiness of his church to perfect us. He's using our sin and shortcomings to sanctify us. So that person right now on the other side of the room that you don't really like that much is a God-ordained piece of sandpaper in your life. Meant to rub off the rough edges in your life. And guess what? You're a piece of sandpaper to them too. And that's fine. And that's right. And that's good. Because that's what God wants. Don't run from that. Don't say, I don't want to go to church because I don't like those people. That's why you're supposed to be there. They're helping you grow as a Christian. They're sandpaper. And and that's good. So I want you to think about what you can be if you will just give yourself more devotion, more commitment to, and more involvement in the local church. Because it's God's mechanism for your growth. The church is the crucible in which we learn patience and endurance and forgiveness. And we need the church to have problems as well as blessings because we need to grow as Christians. And this is the place it happens. Perhaps you've heard someone say before that if you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. You've heard that? Well, I've got another another one for you today. It's this. If you find the perfect church, don't go there because it won't help you grow. A perfect church wouldn't help you grow because there'd be no sandpaper there. And if there's no sandpaper, there's no friction and there's no rubbing off of your rough edges. And so it's important. We need abrasives to grow. Here's my advice. Find a church that's sinful and messy 
and start there. Find a church that's imperfect. Go there and you'll be in a place where you can grow. It's through trials in our lives that God sanctifies us. And he does it primarily through the church in the home. So use the church to learn patience. And don't get too easily discouraged when you encounter difficulty. You'll never endure in a church unless you get a clear grasp of this. You know, you'll just get hurt by somebody and then you'll quit. You'll get frustrated. Somebody will bother you and you'll say, I don't want to go there because that person's there and that person's there and that person's there. And you'll just sit at home or you'll hop from church to church and you'll go to another church and feel really great about it until somebody hurts you. And then when they hurt you, you'll go to another church and you'll just live in this incessant cycle of moving around. Look, do this. Just pour, pour yourself into an imperfect, sloppy, messy, sinful church. Go to work because that's where God wants you for his glory and your good. And the last application is this. Use this truth to increase your joy. You know, a building site is not really a fun thing necessarily. And, you know, I'm not really in love with a building site. The church is a building site. And it's hard in some ways to love something like that. Understand that. But what a joy it is when the building is finished. I mean, it's fun to watch the progress of a building. If you're building a home, what do you do? You drive by it every day to see the progress that's made on it. You know, do they put up the roof, part of the roof? Do they, do they install the doors? What are they doing? You're, you're wanting to see the progress. And likewise, we, as Christians, we should learn how to enjoy the process of watching God build his church. Week after week. And one day the work will be complete. I mean, to think about this, to be part of what Christ is bringing together for his glory and your everlasting joy. That's a great privilege that we have as Christians. The day is coming, and I promise you that on that day when Jesus comes back, that you will be more home in the presence of Christ than at any point in this life. Nothing will grieve you anymore on that day because God's work will be done. And so I just want to encourage you to go in the good of that promise and let it fuel your joy. Because here's the thing. Our time on earth is very short. You don't have time to sort of waste. You don't have time to kind of say, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be committed to the local church. I'm just going to hop around and never anchor in and never be involved. I'm just going to move around. Look, time is running out, okay? Pour yourself in. Pour yourself into the church. Give your gifts to the church. Give yourself fully to God. Just say, I'm going to dive in messy and all, and, and, and yeah, and I'm going to endure all the sandpaper rubbing and friction, and I'm going to pour myself in. Why? Because you only have one life to live. Invest yourself fully in this. This is the, the church that Jesus died for. It's his bride. I've never gotten the idea of people say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't, you know, but I don't, uh, I don't love his church. How can you love Jesus, but hate his bride? Pour yourself in to his church. He loves it. Give yourself faithfully to it because a reward is coming someday and the building will be finished and we will worship him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for just changing our perspective, transforming us. Lord, we need that. It's hard sometimes to hang on, and we so easily forget what you've called us to. And we're just, we just want again, Lord, to be reminded of your good and the things that you are seeking to accomplish in your church. So, Lord, help us as we seek to, to do that. Help us to be a church of, yes, sandpaper that rubs off the rough edges on each other's lives and that we would encourage and strengthen one another in our walk with you, that you'd be pleased with us, Lord. We just want to be faithful. Help us to just do that, Lord, not trying to be unique or 
or innovative, but just faithful, Lord. May you help us in that progress, in that direction. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.